The month of March keeps its powder dry. It's a time when glimpses of spring sunshine are savoured, when pale warm light starts to coax the plants back into leaf and blossom. We're on the cusp of something, but there's a certain freedom to shedding the wherewithal of winter and stepping gingerly into the possibility of a spring day. It's this type of energy that we're here to channel on this episode of Confect Corner. We celebrate the bold but largely unsung female abstract expressionists of the post-war art world. We take a tour of a new exhibition dedicated to the luminous sculptural ceramics made by the iconic modernist potter Lucy Rhee. And we learn about the history of a Japanese silk weaving technique called kumihimo. This episode is also about hope and regeneration. We'll hear about the restorative power of gardening and speak to a brave and brilliant fashion designer, Mother of Pearl's creative director, Amy Powney, who is the subject of a new film, detailing her quest to reimagine her brand's approach to ethics and ecology. It's a film about a personal mission, but also the potential of the industry to reimagine how it works, to reinvent itself anew. This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove taking what is essentially very humble material, clay, earth, and making these incredible vessel forms that hold this incredible power and presence and really carry the space. Something that people link quite a lot to Lucy Rhee's own character, who people describe her as being both quite kind of shy and reserved, but having this incredible kind of tenacity and strength and power as well. It's about the actual weavers, the dyers, the spinners, if it's cotton, the cotton pickers, if it's wool, it's the sheep. I really just had this idea of, I need to get right back if I'm gonna be truly sustainable because I need to look at every single part of this puzzle. Women grow because they are heavy with sadness or solitude or grief. Women grow because it is in their bones. Women grow because raising a garden can forge connective tissue to something lost. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove in London, and I'm joined once more by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in London. Hello to you both. Hello, Sophie, and hello, Gillian. Missing you both here in Zurich. Oh, well, it's a gorgeous, crisp, sunny day here at Midori House, so it's nice to be in studio recording the show. Yeah, lovely to see you both. Now, as regular listeners will know, we like to start the show with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. And this is our 25th episode. So we've certainly given a few hints and tips. But Marcella, what do you have for us this month? So I'm just back from Milan and packing for the Paris Fashion Week. But during Berlin Fashion Week, end of January, I saw a really amazing show by Ukrainian designer Lilia Litovskaya. You probably didn't hear from her until now, but now you should. She is creating fashion in fourth generation of tailors and show the beautiful collection with traditional craft elements combined with very modern tailored urban shapes. The show took place in a former bunker renovated by John Pawson and today Museum of the Amazing Feuerle Collection. It's a collection about Asian and contemporary arts. So the models walked through the dimly lit space and were accompanied by three Ukrainian female singers. It was very, very touching and I'm looking forward to her show during Paris Fashion Week on Wednesday. And it's amazing because actually our producer, Paige Reynolds, met Lily Lukotskaya just before the war started in Kyiv. So much has happened since then and it's incredibly inspiring to see how she's managed to 
survive and thrive creatively in this very, very difficult circumstance. And economically, enough to run a business and show in Berlin. I know, exactly. And Paris. In fact, last Fashion Week, we went to a pop-up, which was a collective of Ukrainian designers. We met a few. There was an amazing collective from Odessa. And they're talking about drones overhead and creating this amazing textile heritage that, that still is in Odessa and people have stayed to produce, but in the most difficult circumstances. So it's very interesting. But strangely, if you look through history, some of the best creativity has come out of difficult times. And there's this also a sense of yearning for home. You think it would be a dream to be in Paris, but in fact, really, it's not. It's very conflicted. So I think there's a lot of ambivalence and yearning in the collections as well. Gillian, tell me about what you've been up to. Well, I decided this weekend to do a little potter in West London. I love a little area of Holland Park called Clarendon Cross, and it's a little pedestrian area. On the corner shop, full of windows, is a store dedicated to table linens and tableware. And really, it is an ode to a best-dressed table, but full of creativity. Their linens, the designs verge on being contemporary, and yet the texture of them is so sort of well-washed and soft that they feel vintage and they feel like you're buying an heirloom. The centrepiece of the store is a table, which constantly changes and evolves. But it shows the difference like a beautiful table linen can make, just thrown together with old jars of wildflowers and bric-a-brac crockery. And it really celebrates the focus of a table being the centre and conduit of conversation, of friendships. And being spring, they had the most beautiful mimosa yellow tablecloth with mimosa napkins and pale yellow glasses. I just fell in love with that. But now I think I have to head to Provence maybe and host a little alfresco lunch. Oh, definitely. Where have you been recently? So this weekend I saw the most amazing exhibition. We cycled down Brick Lane in the East End to the Whitechapel Gallery, which is a very beautiful stone building. And there's an exhibition called Action, Gesture, Paint, Women Artists and Global Abstraction. And it's about women who are painting these incredibly abstract beautiful canvases post-war, sort of contemporary with Rothko and Pollock, but then largely unsung. You know, there are 80 works in the exhibition and they are completely stunning, absorbing this riot of colour, so bold and just absorbing. But then so many of them you've never heard of. You know, I felt very conflicted myself going around the exhibition because there's this feeling of, wow, Elaine de Kooning, who's William de Kooning's wife, just did these incredibly epic, stunning colourscapes. She's been largely eclipsed by her husband, largely because of the sort of story of art and the way it was written, slightly writing these women out. But then also the show is about amazing artists from places like Korea, Mozambique, who are also painting in this post-war era, very bold and arresting stuff. And so you leave thinking, wow, I've just made so many discoveries. But then you also think, like, why am I discovering this now? So many years after quite a few of them have died and unrecognised. Do you think a show like this will really put a spotlight in a sense that museum curators will come and re-examine their work and open it up and put it on a platform maybe that some of these artists deserve and never had? I think so. I mean, some of them were showing at the time in group shows mainly alongside people like Pollock. But then I think it just showed... And some of these collections are coming from the US and you know, have already been given quite a lot of kudos. 
but really they're not part of the canon. They're not part of the story of art that we know as this post-war revolution. These people were so radical. There was an amazing video of Nikki de Saint-Fal, the French artist, doing her shooting paintings. So she's just in this amazing jumpsuit, just shooting the canvases, and then all of the paint is dripping down. And you think, like, wow. you know. But she was coming up against so much, essentially, misogyny and difficulties. And she made it in the end, and she is part of the collective imagination. But it took a lot. So I think this show is very, very important for rewriting that story. First up on today's show, the world of ceramics. A little earlier this month, I hopped on a train from London's King's Cross to Cambridge to pay a visit to the city's cultural hotspot, house and gallery space Kettle's Yard, to get an insight into their upcoming retrospective of the iconic modernist putter Lucy Wee. As the team were busy putting the final touches on the exhibition, Sophie caught up with the gallery's director, Andrew Nairn, and assistant curator, Eliza Spindle, to get a sense not only of the Austrian-born British artist's work, but also of her incredible life. Let's join Sophie now on her visit. A few minutes stroll up the hill from the River Cam in central Cambridge, you'll find Kettle's Yard a unique house and gallery space full of art and light. Combining a traditional cottage and a modern extension by Leslie Martin and David Owers, the Kettle's Yard house was home to the collector Jim Ede and his wife and is a work of art in itself. Its sunny, elegant rooms are the perfect home for Lucy Rees' bold, beautiful forms. Although the exhibition itself will display over 100 pieces from the modernist potter, Today we get an insight into the life of the tenacious maker through a tour of four of Lucy Rees' pieces that live permanently in the Kettle's Yard house. As we enter the lower extension of the house, we first find a small dark bowl with a distinctive cream ring. Co-curators Eliza Spindle and Andrew Nairn describe its form. So it's a bowl by Lucy Rees, made in the early 1970s. Typical Lucy reflared form on a narrow foot ring and it's glazed in a kind of dark chocolatey brown manganese glaze, very matte, with a band of cream running around the inside and the outside, kind of towards the top edge. It's incredibly elegant and there's some very beautiful... I like to think that some of the bowls we have from the 1950s in our exhibition are sort of deal new look. They have the same feeling about them, they're so crisp, but look at that wonderful white band on this bowl. And then Jim Ede, who created Kettle Salve with his wife Helen, has perfectly placed every single famously pebble, artwork, sculpture, object, piece of furniture in the Kettlesfield House. And sure enough, the Lucy Reed Bowl here is immaculately placed with four other objects. Follow the room around, and it's impossible to miss the second Lucy Reed that lives on the lower extension. A fantastic white speckled bowl, dubbed by Jim Ede as the Wave. The undulating form of the bowl seems almost impossible on its small base. It looks as if it's levitating. I asked Andrew whether this fragility was characteristic of Ree's work. It can be, and I think that's why Jimmy called it the wave, is this sense of poise or potential. Well, there's a strange sense of both stability and precision and poise and elegance, but also... I hope, some sense of energy, like the best art. It's always sort of still in action. It's still always kind of becoming in some way or it requires us to be looking at it. But you're right, it's got a fantastic sort of delicate 
touch as well. We won't do this because we can't do this anymore. But back in the day, you would sort of ping it with your finger to sort of check the noise. I always live in fear that this pinging, there might be a terrible kind of crack or something. Um, so we won't ping this fantastic white piece. It's interesting how her work has so much power. It's next to this very dramatic collage, but it still really holds your eye, even though it's so discreet. It's a very quiet power. Do you think that's also something that Lucy Bree excelled at? Yeah, absolutely. Taking what is essentially very humble material, clay, earth, and making these incredible vessel forms that hold this incredible power and presence and really carry the space. And it's also something that people link quite a lot to Lucy Rhee's own character, who people describe her as being both quite kind of shy and reserved, but having this incredible kind of tenacity and strength and power as well. So there's definitely a link between her character and the work that she was making. Unlike so many women artists and makers of the 20th century, it seemed as if Rhee's work was broadly given the accolade and respect it deserved at the time. However, Rhee's life was not plain sailing. Forced to flee her home country of Austria in the late 1930s as dangerous political currents were brewing, she had to adjust to a whole new life and style in London. The thing about biography with Lucy Rhee, there's this great watershed in her life when she's forced to leave Austria. She's from a Jewish family and she absolutely has to flee in October 1938. If she hadn't, she would have been interned by the Nazis, essentially. So she comes to London in 38, just before the war, does start making pottery for a little bit, then is told she can't because she's an enemy alien, starts making buttons during the war, which is actually a really intriguing thing. She's making all these little miniature sites of invention and experiment. And then after the war ends, over the next five decades, she becomes one of the world's greatest potters, but certainly one of the most important and distinguished and exciting potters working in, in the UK. But of course, she was Austrian. You know, she was in exile throughout all of this. Despite having established herself on the scene in Vienna, stylistically, she also had to change tact. It was a huge upheaval, particularly as she arrived in the UK at a time when her pottery was really at odds with what was going on elsewhere in British studio pottery and people sort of weren't used to her approach, the appearance of her pots. And she goes and seeks the advice of the potter Bernard Leach, who's really at the helm of British studio pottery movement. And he advises her to sort of change tack and make more sort of rustic looking pottery, which was not what she'd been doing in Vienna. And you can see her start to take on some of his advice in her work from the kind of early 40s. You start to see sort of slightly thicker walled pots. She leaves visible the throwing rings from throwing the pot on the wheel, giving it this kind of more rustic appearance. So definitely you see a subtle shift in her work, although it's kind of temporary. As we head upstairs to the upper level of the house to seek out the final two Lucy Rees, we find a small but exquisite sugar bowl. But the real eye-catcher is a black and white pot with remarkable etchings. Eliza tells us more. Yeah, so this is an extraordinary bowl by Lucy Rhee, again, poised on this kind of incredibly narrow foot and sort of eggshell thin in the way it's been thrown and turned. But what's specifically very interesting about this one is that it uses scraffito and inlay, which are both techniques that Rhee 
started using in the late 40s, early 50s, and continued to use sort of right through to the end of her career. And this involved scratching with a needle through the wet glaze to create these kind of etched linear patterns, or sometimes scratching first and then inlaying pigment into those etched grooves to create a negative version of the same design. And this technique has a kind of lovely origin story that Lucy Rhee and Hans Kopel were visiting Avebury Stone Circle in Wiltshire in the late 1940s, and they encountered these Bronze Age bowls in the museum there that had been etched similarly with these linear patterns using bird's bones, and these had been kind of preserved in the museum. And both Rhee and Kopel were completely captivated by these ancient bowls and went back and started to try and replicate the technique in their own work. And this is a really beautiful example of that. It's interesting to think about her relationship to history and archaeology like that, and also nature, as you said. There is a very sort of wonderful connectivity and tactility to all of her stuff. You just want to ping it. (laughs) Do you think that archaeology and, and history was a very inspirational thing for her? Yeah, absolutely. So as well as the Bronze Age bowls that inspired her scraffito pots, Rhee often spoke about early memories with her uncle, who lived on a country estate in Austria, sort of not far from Vienna. And he was a keen amateur archaeologist and conducted digs and excavations in the vineyards on the country estate. And they unearthed sort of Roman pottery and things like that. And Rhee often spoke about this later as being a formative experience for her and that she was forever trying to replicate the kind of beautiful poise of these Roman bowls that had been dug up by her uncle. Whether buttons or bowls, it's clear that Lucy Rhee's metropolitan kiln in her marble arch muse house rarely got the chance to cool off. She was always keen to keep her order book full. I think no one would have questioned the fact that she was a phenomenal hard worker and that she absolutely needed to just keep on making. It's interesting with some artists or ceramicists or potters, Quite a lot gets destroyed, you know, this wasn't good enough and so on. With Lucy Ree, that feels like less the case. You know, anything that she did finally make, I think she felt had been made, was sort of almost like a, had the kind of presence of a being in a way and deserved to be around. So you do find quite sort of quirky Lucy Ree's out there as well, one or two of which might be in the show. And there's the sense that I think she sort of felt that once she'd sort of breathed life into this clay and it had become... It sort of deserved to kind of live, it deserved to go out into the world. But I think it's also a sign, and this is really the story of this exhibition, that she was in the business of experimenting and trying things all the time. She never sort of sat back and said, oh, everybody likes this one, I'll just carry on making this for the next five years. She would just try something new, you know, just keep on trying. And that's, of course, a a fantastic compliment to any artist that they keep experimenting, even when there's a very clear market or there are people always wanting to buy one particular kind of work. She never stopped. And at the end of our exhibition, I hope our visitors will find it very moving. We have a series of her works, I think it's sort of 12 to 15 of them sort of next to each other. Incredible range and variety of glazes and forms. All of them were made when she was in her late 70s or early 80s. And it is really phenomenal to think she was still inventing, still making these incredible works at such a, a late age. Sophie, what a wonderful report on such an iconic potter. This visit to Kettle's Yard, did it give you a new perspective on her work? Definitely. I mean, it's so interesting to see her quiet, beautiful, elegant works in the context of the house and to go round the house with such amazing 
curators who can really tell you about, you know, the stories of her going round Austria looking at kind of antiquities with her uncle and then going around post-war Britain looking at antiquities and then taking inspiration from them. But she's such an amazing character, so resilient and just dedicated over so many decades to her work. It's amazing to see that, you know, again, we're seeing a real recognition for that. Marcella, it's amazing to think that really you could buy Lucy Rees' work in heels. You know, these are pieces that were made to be used in some instances. Tell me about your own ceramics. Are you a collector in any way? I'm probably a collector without knowing it, because if I'm thinking about it, I have quite a couple of pieces at home. Some friends of mine in Zurich are creating beautiful ceramics. That's my approach. So, for example, I have vases with the smiling face on it, which I think are beautiful, by Barbara Köberle and her small niche brand L'Elefantino. Then the beautiful vases of Link Ceramics, you probably heard already of or art pieces by Parisian fashion brand, who is doing also very, very humorful ceramics, Krista Seya. So you see, that's my approach, more like niche brands, local, that I'm bringing in my home. What about you, Gillian? Well, you know me, I'm the flea market girl. So I have just an odd selection of things that I get great joy of discovering in piles of bric-a-brac, and then I'll spot one thing. When you take it out of the jumble and the mess of everything and place it beautifully on a table or with a flower, it feels like a piece of artwork to me just for a few pounds or a few euro. And you? Well, I've got a few pieces I've picked up along the way. I've got something by Bernard Leach, which is mentioned in this report as a kind of inspiration to Lucy Wee, making pottery in Cornwall, almost like the father of studio pottery. But it's not a very prized piece. You know, again, it was made to be used, and then since then it's become almost more appreciated. I just appreciate every little bowl and cup I've collected on the way, and I think they can really enhance your life. And I love the idea that people are still drinking out of Lucy Wee cups mm even though they are, you know, now sold at auctions for thousands, because they are attached to them and they enhance their every day. You know, I'm sure they're particularly careful with them now. (laughs) But it's still lovely to think of them being used. British writer and gardener Alice Vincent has been on a quest to investigate the reasons women turn to the earth. What began as an answer to a Google questionnaire turned into travelling the country, speaking to women about their gardens and their lives. Eventually, this turned into a new book, Why Women Grow, Stories of Soil, Sisterhood and Survival. Comfex Sophie monaghan Coon spoke to Alice about the journey to writing the book. But first, Alice gave us a sense of the many reasons why women grow. Women grow to create life and food and beauty. Women grow to conjure substance from the scruff of land. Women grow because they see potential in the hard-rolled nuggets of clay and promise between the tangles of ancient shrubs. Women grow because it makes something of nothing, because they see that broader changes can come from those they make in the small patch beneath their feet. Women grow because they are heavy with sadness or solitude or grief. Women grow because it is in their bones. Women grow because raising a garden can forge connective tissue to something lost. Women grow to pass on power, to honour the knowledge their foremothers have gathered for centuries. Women grow because the earth can swallow feelings that the air can't. 
women grow because sometimes rage can only be mollified by digging until the sweat trickles down their backs. Women grow because in doing so they can make space, sometimes silently, sometimes by stealth, that nobody expects them to occupy. Women grow because it offers them control in a world determined to rid them of it. Women grow because they are curious and canny and they are compelled to. We are speaking today about Why Women Grow, which has just come out. And I wanted to start off by asking you about the project which kind of formed the basis of this book. So you spent quite a long time speaking to lots of different women. I believe most of those conversations started off with kind of an online form and just asking people about their kind of gardening, the reasons behind it. So could you tell me more about that? It was a real lockdown baby. So... My previous book, Rootbound, had come out right at the beginning of 2020. And then the summer that followed was obviously quite different from what we had all anticipated. And I was, like a lot of people, going through a kind of strange sort of grief and isolation that I didn't really understand. And one of the things that I did to sort of alleviate this was wonder about why other women gardened in a means of trying to understand why I did. And so this started with a very literal writing, a list of names of people I knew of or were interested by or whose practices I admired and then became a sort of broader obsession. And I realised that if I was going to go on this journey of exploration, I needed to cast my net wider, which is why I set up a, a Google form and put it online and got around 700 responses in a matter of days, which is quite overwhelming. But one of the things that I realised was that women garden far more than often we're perceived to garden, and we do a lot of it invisibly. And also that everyone has a lot of very deep and interesting and often unexamined reasons why they do that. So... It came out of loneliness and I I literally travelled the length and breadth of the country and then I also went further afield. I went to Eero, which is a kind of very remote Danish island, to stay with a stranger for a few days. Deepest, darkest Somerset, all over the place. And these conversations were ostensibly about gardens, but they very quickly evolved into conversations about life, womanhood, persistence, motherhood, nurturing, grief, the lot. You mentioned there that that starting point took you all over the place. And one of the really lovely things about the book is the kind of scope of all the women that you're talking to. They're at many different stages in their lives, in their gardening careers, in their access to green spaces. I wonder if you could pick out a few characters or or just try and sort of summarise who you met or some of the conversations that kind of stuck with you the most. Yeah, it was really important to me to challenge the contemporary narrative or rather the traditional narrative of gardening that it's a sort of pursuit of people who have access to land it's pursuit of white people it's pursuit of the middle classes so I spoke to all sorts of people I spoke to a woman named Carol she actually grew up in a house that my house looks onto in Brixton and about two days after I'd moved in she just turned up and was like I used to live 
around the back <laughs> of your house. Uh, she's amazing, this incredible campaigner. Her father was a civil rights activist and she's carried on his fire but applied it to community gardens and she's greened so many spaces in the city and combined that with art. And any big development that's going on, she will take that to the council and petition for green space. She's amazing. There's a woman in her 80s called Diana who kind of the opposite side of things she's sort of lived a very glamorous life but even though she's got incredible stories of this very high-flying existence her garden is something she's worked on for 40 years it's her life's work we've become very close friends I spoke to rehabilitating prisoners in Kent who had never gardened before and found that working in a greenhouse gave them a connection with the children they've been separated from I spoke to 22-year-old drag kings who, when they were separated from their performance art, were able to find meaning in growing organic vegetables. Everyone was fascinating and everyone was very, very generous with what they offered in terms of their stories, which was the most surprising thing of all of it. You mentioned that one of the things you kind of learned going into this was how women are often gardening more than you might have expected and often that's not necessarily seen or if it's seen it's not necessarily appreciated what were some of the links that you tease out in the book between gardening and having control over spaces and having your own space and that kind of feminist angle that comes across throughout it's a really good question this is an inherently feminist book but feminism and even sort of that gentle domestic discord that I think happens in a lot of heteronormative relationships didn't really come up in a lot of these conversations. We didn't sit down and set the world to rights. We talked about people's lives. But control and space were the two things that if you really wanted to answer the question, why do women grow? Those were the two beats that persisted throughout every conversation. Women were either making space because they were grieving or they were making space because they were recovering from being in a coercive, controlling relationship or they were making space for joy and celebration because they were gardening in one instance. Only one instance did I speak to someone who gardened with another person and that was with her wife. So these two women were gardening and making this space together, which I thought was very interesting. And I think control is important because we have so little of it elsewhere in our lives. This is 2023. We have more independence as women than we have ever had. But we're also living in a landscape where our reproductive rights are being taken away. We are living in a situation where we are still in a patriarchy. And so to be able to have that autonomy to go to ground and carve something, whether that's for food or beauty or creativity, is a kind of reclamation. Just finally... It feels like you're doing the work, you're doing the gardening and then you start to question why you're doing it and then you have all these conversations trying to answer some of those questions. And now that you've had that sort of exploration time and you're back in the garden, how are those conversations impacting your relationship with gardening and how you feel about it when you're sort of in the actual act of it? Yeah, it has released me from a lot of the shackles of expectation that I used to hold in my garden of trying to keep things up to look a certain way or to do certain tasks at a certain time. The past year I really haven't actively gardened very much and I've allowed the garden to reclaim itself and I've stood back and I've looked at what's been happening which I've found really interesting and quite beautiful 
And I hear so many of the conversations I had in the researching of this book when I'm in my garden. I also hear them out on the street. But, you know, the way that someone would talk about compost, the way that someone would talk about growing things, that has all informed my gardening practice. And it's made me realise that I can do it on my own terms. It's a very, very freeing feeling. Alice Vincent there in conversation with Confect's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Why Women Grow is available from the 2nd of March and published by Canon Gate. I love this thread that Alice picks up on through her research. For almost all of her interviewees, growing and gardening is about control and space. Marcella, are you or have you ever been an avid grower? What do you think, Sophie? I think absolutely. I can see those green fingers <laughs> in my oh, mind's eye. Yeah. Mm, you should visit more Zurich. <laughs> I think, no, the sands and, and sceneries of gardens and parks are, I think, a kind of real elixir of life. I mean, I love the damp earth of a garden in the morning, a garden after rain, or at table, freshly picked field salad warmed by the sun. I all love it, but I don't have a green thumb myself. So sorry. I'm so sorry. I imagined you kind of <laughs> okay. with secateurs in hand. Yeah, I know Julian. Probably in future. Yeah. <laughs> I know that type of gardener, the kind of <laughs> sort of one who likes to observe other people gardening. But Julian, I imagine that you do like to. It's certainly you have a terrace. Let's maybe lower ambitions here. But when you do garden, what motivates you to do it? It's therapeutic, isn't it? It's a mixture of instant gratification because I don't think I do have a green thumb, but I have absolutely adore potting my plants on my terrace. Now, sometimes I do it colour-coded. So I'll do, like, on my upstairs terraces, pinks and whites, and then downstairs I'll choose to do sort of dark blues and purples. So it is that instant gratification of colour. Now I'm being a bit more practical, and I quite like to have a kitchen garden, things I can use when I'm cooking in my kitchen, so herbs and basils. They don't do very well, I'm afraid, my basils. But rosemary and parsley and mint. I love my mint tea. But the pleasure I get out of it is twofold. The one is the therapeutic potting. I just can spend hours. I usually listen to the radio or podcasts and I pot or sometimes no sound at all and it's just the birds. But then it's the amazing pleasure of just the sense of achievement and watching your garden grow. I absolutely adore it. It's funny because the idea that it is about space and it's almost about owning your space, you really connect with the space no matter how small, you feel like you've really done something when you've been in the garden, just digging and potting and planting in a way that you wouldn't if you'd just been almost static. And I think that report is interesting in that sense. It's about ownership in a sense and real connection. And now, February is just behind us, but for many hectic trips to different corners of Europe to catch the first fashion weeks of the year continue. A question circulating on runway show sidelines and in the industry at large for over a decade now is what constitutes true sustainability and is it even possible? One woman on a quest to show what end-to-end sustainability really looks like is Amy Powner, creative director of Mother of Pearl. The intense journey she went on to try and create a fully sustainable collection from field to finished garment is now charted in a brand new independent documentary, Fashion Reimagined. Amy joined me down the line a little earlier to talk about the film and the broader conversations she hopes to spark through telling her tale. 
we started talking about the documentary's fittingly organic beginnings. So it all came about because Becky Hartner was filming me for my winner's moment for the Vogue Fashion Fund. And Becky just sort of had a chat with me during, but sort of after the film and said, you know, what's next for you? And I explained that, you know, sustainability had been what I really wanted to work on for the brand with the winnings because it was a, a monetary prize for the award as well that I was going to use that money and, you know, see if I could get right to the bottom of my supply chains. And for Becky, it was just like a, a light bulb moment. And she'd been on a personal journey herself to try and be more sustainable in her own life. And she'd worked on some documentaries before. And I think she was just sort of feeling quite uneasy about, you know, her role as a content producer of promoting and marketing brands, you know, in fast fashion. And this for her was just, I think, the kind of pivot that she needed in her career. And she just said, I have to film you. I have to make this into a documentary. And I just said, yeah, sure. I didn't really think much of it. You know, I didn't really know where it was going to go at the time. And she didn't really know, you know, there was no money, there was no investment. It was very much pieced together over five years. And um, so, yeah, it was kind of a meeting of two very similar people. You know, she had to be the same kind of force to make the film happen as I did to make my supply chains happen. And just to give the listeners a little bit of an insight into what your objectives were, why Becky was so drawn to you as a subject. Tell me about the ambitions that you had at the beginning of this journey and, you know, how they've been realised. You know, there's a lot of brands that, whether they're greenwashing or, you know, genuine, sort of trying to be more sustainable, you know, and for most people that's just like, okay, I've bought a fabric with a green stamp on it and, you know, maybe it's an organic cotton versus a conventional one or maybe it's a... Uh, recycled polyester combined with something else and they think they're doing better you know and you know they are to a certain extent but for me what I realized I'm quite a logical person and I just really pieced everything together which is this isn't just about the people that make your clothes it's not just about the person you buy your fabric off it's about the actual weavers the dyers the spinners if it's cotton, the cotton pickers, if it's wool, it's the sheep, if it's tensile, it's the forest. So I really just had this idea of I need to get right back if I'm going to be truly sustainable, because I need to look at every single part of this puzzle. And I also need to look at the journey of a garment. So, you know, let's say it's a cotton from the cotton plant or the seed, in fact, right through to that finished garment. I mean, it cites the stats in the film, but most garments that you receive have been to five different countries before you've received it just because, you know, spinners, weavers, dyers, cotton pickers, you know, et cetera, are all sort of in different countries in the world. And so I thought, actually, I need to minimise the travel that these garments are going on. So it really was, can I make the best possible garment by attacking all the different elements to what would make a garment sustainable? And, and that was my journey. I guess it was being a perfectionist in the subject matter, but also just seeing if that was possible, you know, and how broken the system really was. I mean, it's interesting in the film, you see you trekking across fields in the rain to meet farmers. You really do traverse a lot of ground looking at your supply chain. But it also shows a lot about the wider industry and the sustainability question in fashion in general poses a lot of questions about overconsumption, pollution, exploitation that seems to creep into every stage of production, if, even if you're ultra careful. Do you think this film throws out more questions than it answers in a sense? And do you feel it is possible to make a truly sustainable fashion brand? I think the truth is whatever you make, 
it's not sustainable. You know, to say something sustainable is to say something can sustain. And and I guess the making of anything has a footprint, you know. So whatever we're doing is causing an effect to the planet. So even if you're making a garment with best possible practices, you've still taken resources from the planet. I think that's the first thing that everybody needs to be more mindful of. And a lot of people have been saying, you know, but you're a truly sustainable brand. And we are in the fact that we're truly trying our best to do the best possible practices for everything. But we still have to understand that everything has a footprint, no matter what it is. So it's best, obviously, to do it the best possible way. But yeah, I think there's a lot of brands communicating and marketing about, you know, how sustainable their product is, let's say. I mean, the feedback we've had, and this is from people that feel like they know a lot about supply chains to people that they don't, is just, I didn't realise it was so complex, or I hadn't really thought about this part and this part, or hadn't really worked out about the travel the garment goes on or whatever. So yeah, I think it does kind of open people's minds up to thinking further than people have already thought. So therefore, it probably does open another can of worms. But hopefully, it also just shows brands and people like how complicated it is, and then therefore how much to consider your purchases going forward or your brand going forward. And the film is really an insight into you and your character and your drive. There are moments where you talk about your own background and almost as an outsider in the industry, looking in with a very unique perspective. I wondered if you could give us an insight into your own upbringing, your own background and how that's informed you and how that's shaped you as a person and brought you to this point. It's not that I'm a unique person by any means, but I definitely had a more, I don't like to talk about class systems, but, you know, I have a very working class background, let's say, and my parents didn't have much money and, you know, we lived off grid and I guess it was a different childhood for the most, but but I do think, and not to stereotype, it was quite a different background for people that work in our industry specifically, especially in like a creative director position. And yeah, I guess it's always made me sort of feel I mean I talk about it in the film like you know I wasn't a natural fit for fashion in a way and I guess for a long time I was sort of trying to just go through the motions of what fashion was but once I started on this journey I actually started managing my brand in a way that was more authentic to me and talking about it in a way that was more authentic to me and you know kind of producing our clothes in the way that I wanted to and that has made the brand and myself happier and more successful but going back to you know what my childhood's did for that I guess the truth is I think people think because you were off grid therefore you're sustainable and it wasn't really like that it was more I mean I didn't want to be off grid when I was a kid I'm glad I, I was now but I guess I just knew that electricity didn't just come easy you know we didn't have a switch to turn on and electric just turned up you know I had to think about all these things we had to think about where our water came from where our food came from where our energy came from and I guess that made me just understand the layers beyond kind of the surface that we see things of in, in this world or this country. So I think it was that. And then also my parents worked on the farms and, and I did too. So I think from a very young age, I was very aware of where our food came from. You know, I used to pick the cabbage in the field at six in the morning. And so I knew where food came from. And therefore, when I thought about cotton, I just immediately understood what that would look like. So I guess it's never been a new, brand new piece of information for me. Like the way people are watching this film and it's opening their eyes to things. I guess I just grew up kind of understanding the bottom up. And what would you like to see happen as a result of this film? Because I think you leave the cinema feeling determined to change as a viewer. 
I wondered, as a subject to this film, what are your hopes? I mean, that's really nice to hear. When Becky and I started working on the project, obviously she's a director and she had the editing power. I had some kind of say in it in terms of, you know, I got to look at it, but, it, you know, it was definitely her film and her editing and, and how she wanted it to come together. But the one thing I was quite keen on, and luckily we were both on the same page, was, you know, it wasn't a film that was just, this is a documentary about the problem which we see a lot, you know, you've got documentaries like Seaspiracy or Carospiracy or, you know, The True Cost, and they're all incredibly important and I'm very pro them. But it is just sort of giving the viewer a problem. And what I love about this film, and actually it's been the biggest success of it, is by weaving in kind of my character and my story, I guess it leaves you more hopeful or just not that kind of like huge hole where you think, oh my God, this issue is so huge what am I going to do about it I guess it tells you that issue that's huge and leaves a hole in you but it also shows what one girl did on her own the caravan kid that managed to make a change so I think and my hope is that people will think well if she can do it I can do it. That was Mother of Pearl's creative director Amy Powner in conversation with Sophie Grove. Fashion Reimagined will be in cinemas on March 3rd and available to stream through Sky from April. This is Confet Corner. Next to the art of silk weaving, a new exhibition at Japan House on London's High Street, Kensington, is delving into the history and techniques of kumihimo. An ancient form of silk weaving is the intricate and decorative craft of braiding hand-dyed silk threads into cords and a practice that dates back to over 1,500 years ago. Monocle's Grace Charlton brings us this report. With eye-catching, colourful and geometrical patterns, kumihimo cords were historically used in samurai armour to link together plates made of metal or deer hide for ornamental knots and as decoration in temples. Today, kumihimo is mostly associated with the obi belt sashes of traditional kimono. In Tokyo, the family-owned Domyo workshop has been producing kumihimo since the Meiji period in 1652, and contributed both new and old pieces from its archive for Japan House. The exhibition's curator, Hashimoto Mari, who is a writer on Japanese art and the vice director of the Eisei Bunko Museum in Tokyo, explained more about the historical significance of kumihimo. Kumihimo came from China between 5th to 6th century with the arrival of Buddhism and Using the same technique, kumihimo was made throughout 7th to 8th century throughout. And it was made for various usage. It was used for the purpose of dressing as a fashion item, but also for military wear. As well as that, it was used for Buddhist religious purposes as well. Historically, the reason why kumihimo was used and embraced is because it fulfilled both decorative functions as well as the everyday functions. The reason comes from the elasticity of kumihimo. And with any knots or ties, once it's been tied in knots, it wouldn't 
come off. It wouldn't be detangled. So it was perfect for both usages, for military and fashion functions. And in a very small space of one string, you could express so many different patterns and colors elaborately. In today's world, we would see kumihimo in obijime, the obi cord, as well as the strings for the haori jacket. Those are the main usage nowadays. One thing that we could say about the patterns is that they are almost always abstract, with the exception of some items that were made in the Edo period. Some of them showed text information or flowers. Almost always throughout the history, it was abstract patterns. It is believed that a lot of the ideas and inspirations came from natural elements, such as animals, plants, or winds or rain. As a particularly specialized skill, I ask Hashimoto Mari about the importance of preserving the art and the craftsmanship of handmade kumihimo. Yes, kumihimo in Japan is solely used for dressing in kimono. Therefore, if the number of kimono wearers decreases, it could be under the danger of extinction. However, we have talked about the strength of kimono, how if you see it as a beautiful braided cord, which is elastic and beautifully decorated with lots of colors, I have a hope that some people outside of Japan would really see the usage and the purpose of how kumihimo could be used. The design and the way the exhibition has been presented is in itself worth noticing. Japanese architect Mitsui Rei has skillfully designed a minimal and discreet space to let the delicate braids and cords become the centre of attention. The stands used to weave the braids and cords, the marudai and takadai, have been rendered in see-through perspex instead of wood, while kumihimo detailing on the white timber structures of the room elegantly tie the space together. The reason why I mentioned nothing, nothingness, as the design concept is that it's a kumihimo exhibition and my design is not at the foreground. It shouldn't be. A lot of the designers or the architects would like to show off their creations and designs, but that is not the purpose of this exhibition. I wanted to make sure that the kumihimo plays a leading figure. The idea of white timber comes from himorogi, that you would see in Japanese shrines. What it means is the sacred section being cordoned off. At shrines, they would use bamboos and linen strings, as well as the papers cut in zigzag. In my mind, bridges are what carries the era forward to the next generation, so it links the times together. And in terms of the colors used, each section of the kumihimo's bridges have different colors, and there are four sections. It's four seasons. Might be a basic idea, but the idea really comes from the repetitions that we go through, from spring, summer, autumn, and winter. We all go through it repeatedly, and how the times are being carried forward. So that is what I wanted to represent, partly because kumihimo itself 
is the act of repetition. We go through the actions the same times to create these beautiful crafts. Finally, I sat down with Japan House's director of programming, Simon Wright, on how he hopes the Kumihimo exhibition will be received and the tapestry of cultural exchange that braiding and weaving can create. One of the reasons to bring an exhibition like this to Japan House London is to try and surprise people, I think. I can understand that it's not particularly well known, this crafting technology of Kumihimo. And that's maybe the point, to try and bring to attention the detail and the sophistication of something which, even in Japan, is not necessarily that well known. And that, I think, is what Japan House London tries to do, is to try to surprise people, to try and bring things which are not necessarily typically associated with Japan, that don't automatically spring to mind. And I hope people will be surprised when they come to this exhibition and surprised at just how intricate, how detailed, how sophisticated this form of craftwork is. For Confect in London, I'm Grace Charlton. And finally, it's time for our essay. It's easy to obsess over one type of clothing item. For some women, it's shoes for every occasion. For others, it's a search for that perfect winter coat. But for Comfex deputy editor Chiara Ramella, it's a quest for cosiness that reigns king. A close inspection of anybody's wardrobe will often reveal its owner's obsession with a specific item of clothing. Some women have endless rows of tailored white shirts, piles of colourful cardigans or enough sandals for a year-long summer. But I realised what my own obsession was when I tried to shut my overstuffed pyjamas drawer. I've always had a soft spot for sleepwear, no matter the season. For some, the transition between waking hours and slumber is marked by creams, ointments and face masks. But for me, slipping into a matching top and trousers means a lot more than a convenient change of outfit. It's not about a quasi-scientific analysis of what makes for the deepest REM phase. It goes to the heart of what it means to dress beautifully for yourself, even if you share your bed with someone else. By all of this, I don't mean that my choices are extravagant or risque. My parameters for a good pair of pyjamas are simple but very specific. It's a no to synthetic fabrics, lace and, against received wisdom, silk. Yes to cotton, modal and, on a particularly cold night, a tartan flannel. The perfect pyjama is roomy but not baggy, more than minimalist but not mawkish. When the sticky heat of summer tempts most city dwellers into little more than a t-shirt, I stick religiously to my matching singlets and shorts. The effort matters for many reasons, including its ability to allow me to wake up feeling more ready for the day than my ruffled hair would suggest. Come bedtime, the ritual sends a signal to my overactive mind that it's time to let go and embrace a newfound poise. You can almost see the posture change. It's the equivalent of wearing a great jacket and your smartest shoes 
but between the sheets. A dedication to sourcing the good stuff has led me to get a couple of sets by New Zealand brand General Sleep on a recent visit to Wellington. It was a precious opportunity to stock up on some of its impeccable items handmade by Indian weavers. It's interesting how this brand, like many companies who make well-crafted, well-designed pyjamas, believes that its models are so good that they can and should be worn out and about. Though I take no issue with the fact that their aesthetics lend themselves to doing just that, I am against the proposition in principle. Your favourite pyjamas should feel too nice to be donned outside. Sometimes it's important to keep the most beautiful things for ourselves. That was Convex Deputy Editor Chiara Mella riffing on her obsession with sleepwear. Gillian, can you relate to Chiara's unrelenting desire to be best dressed in her dreams? Well, I do not. I have to admit, I think I'm really all about cosiness when it comes to nightwear. And it depends on the season, but winter, I'm all about just really gorgeous flannels, comfy, comfy, comfy flannels. But I don't like the dark ones. I like the, you know, more pastel greys and pinks and light blues. And then by summer, what I really like, again, are a bit sort of vintage finds. I love a really beautiful, crisp, old cotton nighties. I like the old vintage ones. Marcella, you must have a favourite brand of sleepwear. Do you have any old favourites or are you always looking out for something new? Uh, some, the newer ones look more chic in bed. I think as we are spending almost a third of our lives in bed, we should really <laughs> <laughs> we should dress neatly and chic. So I like the Copenhagen-based brand Tekla. It's really cool because it has like a little bit oversized shapes and this is not looks very fashionable but it's also very comfortable and then since a long time I'm adoring the American brand Sleepy Jones they started with the brand telling that a lot of great artworks were created in pyjamas and I just love this thought and yeah you probably have some artists in mind pictures of them painter in pyjamas in front of his canvas or a novelist typing in his writing machine. So I really, I love this idea and that's why I love this brand. That's a great thought. <laughs> I was actually thinking about this incredible Ukrainian brand of sleepwear called Sleepers. And, you know, just in reference to Lily Lakotskaya, they've really come through some incredible adversity, but their stuff is really beautiful. And I also really prize a French brand. All French women have a Marjolaine little slip and these are made in near Lyon with Calais lace and I've got a few of them and they're really beautiful, lovely things that you can kind of collect and keep forever. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak as ever. Confect Corner is produced by Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and is edited by Christy O'Grady. You can reach us at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.